0: Well, good morning. It's great to be here with you. Thanks for that enthusiastic good morning response, Casey. (laughs) My name is Luke Stair, if we haven't met yet, and I am our community engagement coordinator here at First Baptist. Uh, It's just always a joy to be with you. Uh, I love being here worshiping with you. And it's just a gift that I don't take for granted. And it has been a just great week of ministry in the life of First Baptist. You've heard already about our college students being on a mission trip. Uh, But our youth actually did a local, we'll use air quotes, trip called uh, Culture and Witness Week. It was new. um, And all week long, some of our youth have been learning about Islam and how to be effective witnesses to their Muslim neighbors. I don't know if you knew this, but one in eight people in Arlington are Muslim. So our youth have spent the week learning how to interact with and share the gospel with our Muslim neighbors. Um, Some of whom requested copies of the New Testament and we'll be able to provide some follow-up through a ministry partner, which is just great news. They'll have conversations that follow that up. But I've been with them, leading them in prayer each morning and helping them learn to recognize that the Holy Spirit is who sends us and guides us in mission And I have just been so amazed to hear our youth talk about coming out of prayer, hearing God impress a passage of scripture on them or feeling a sense of peace that combats their anxiety about going into a mosque for the first time. And it's amazing to hear our teenagers talk about that. I'm really thankful for the people that I get to work with, Kirk Crodel and Tanner and Chelsea and Ashley for putting that week together and for inviting me to be a part of it. Uh, My family and I also had the privilege of hosting the college students who weren't on the Denver trip at our home on Wednesday night. It was a ton of fun and we had a full house and I mean that quite literally, they filled it up. Um, Just as a note, if our college ministry ever asks to use your home, just say yes. Y'all, they clean your house when it's over. So if Connor or memory ever come to you and say, can we, can we do something at your home? The answer is just yes. Okay. That's for you guys. <laughs> so, uh, but if you're new around here, I'm not a regular pastor. Our pastor is Dr. Wiles. He's on his study leave, which began uh, at the start of July. Uh, but we've been working through a two month series on eternity. Why does it matter? And... Uh, All July long, we've had a rotation of preachers, mostly from our staff, kind of grappling with eternity. And Dr. Wiles will be back next Sunday, starting a new series on the supernatural. But this morning, we're still here talking about eternity, but we're also hopefully learning how to communicate these truths about eternity in a way that we can explain them to our neighbors who may not know Jesus um, if you're looking for a deeper dive ever or some practical tips on how to do this, I'd really love to point you to our podcast, Tell Me More. It's normally Dr. Wiles, Katie Reed Hodges, and myself. Obviously in July, Dr. Wiles has not been with us. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was an episode where we had Gary Stidham and he provided an even more kind of practical guidelines for sharing your faith. So I'd encourage you to listen to that if you have not. But this is the second time that I've gotten to preach to you all. uh, And it's also the second time I've gotten to end a sermon series. So if you remember last summer about this time, I got to end the book of Ecclesiastes with you all. And I got to proclaim the really hope-filled message that God is going to judge everything you do. (laughs) Real Real crowd pleaser. And today I get another really exciting topic. Death. (laughs) So, we're going to have a lot of fun today. (laughs) But in all seriousness, while we may not call death fun, it is a pervasive topic, it's an important topic. Uh, So, let's just take a minute to think about how death gets kind of represented throughout stories, TV, film, art, music. You know, I studied English for my degree in college and I have lost count of the number of poems I've read about death. And if we think about pop culture, a couple of weeks ago, two movies came out on the same day, uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer. And now, interestingly enough, in the trailer for Barbie, uh, and this has since become a meme, uh, Barbie is having an existential crisis during a dance sequence and she asks the people around her, do you guys ever think about dying? And then in Oppenheimer, a very different movie, he, Oppenheimer, who's a real historical figure, the movie talks about this quote that he has, and it says it, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. So these two movies, Barbenheimer as they have come to be known, point to this kind of fascination that our culture has with death. And from the world of cinema to children's television, death is everywhere. Many of us in this room have probably seen the famous episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which came out in 1970, entitled Death of a Goldfish, which helped children navigate the difficulty of death. In that show's 33-year run, it is frequently listed as one of the most significant and important episodes. And it was so significant and powerful that it actually got remade in the modern classic children's show, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood that I know many of those people in this room have seen probably more than they would care to count. But we could all name songs about death and artists as varied as Taylor Swift, Eric Clapton, 50 Cent, Bob Dylan, Wiz Khalifa, Celine Dion, Coldplay, and more all have famous songs about death. It runs the gamut of genre. Death is everywhere in the art that we make in the stories we tell and the songs that we sing because it is one of the few universal human experiences. And unless the Lord returns first, everyone in this room will die. Just buckle up, everybody. (laughs) So it is worth pointing out that our culture is not just fascinated with the act of dying, but it actually has some picture of what it thinks the afterlife looks like. 72, 73% of Americans, sorry, believe in heaven and 62% believe in hell. Just in case you're wondering, that is more people than are Christians. So there is a large notion of some kind of afterlife for people in our culture. I think about shows like NBC's The Good Place that ran for four seasons and it effectively presented a kind of secular picture of the afterlife uh, where you guessed it, there's a good place and a bad place. So the people around us are thinking about death, and they're thinking about what happens after they die, but they aren't necessarily certain about what that is. But as Christians, we hold a pretty particular view of death, and it's the one revealed to us in Scripture, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So we believe that death is an end, but it is not the end, And we have a particular vision from Scripture, again, about what life after death entails. So let's lay some theological groundwork because part of this, and part of the point of this entire series is to help us articulate what we believe to our neighbors who don't believe in Jesus. And to do that, we need to understand what we're talking about. So, death is not an original part of creation. It's not something God made. In Romans 5, 12, the apostle Paul tells us that just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. God did not make death and God did not make sin. It is an alien power that is the result of sin. I think Paul would maybe put it this way. By sinning, we come under the rule and reign of death. And we are then subjected to its power. So sometimes I think we can use church words too much that they kind of lose all meaning. We hit this kind of princess bride, you keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means kind of situation. And I think we do that sometimes with sin. So, part again of the purpose of this sermon is to help you articulate truths to our neighbors. We need to define sin in a way that makes sense to those neighbors. So there is a really great New York Times columnist named David Brooks. He became a Christian later in life. And he actually does some of really helpful groundwork for us in learning how to articulate our beliefs to the wider culture. And he would define sin kind of following the tradition of the theologian Augustine. And he would say that sin is love out of order. And so if you've ever walked up to an elevator or into a restroom and seen an out of order sign, just picture that, but picture it for you. Uh, But it's not just that it's broken, it's that we actually get them in the wrong order. So here's an example to help you think about that, that he provides. So imagine that a friend tells you something in confidence. They don't want you to tell other people. And then you go to a party and you blab your friend's thing that they told you in confidence. You put your love of popularity over your love of your friend. Do we all see how we got love out of order in that situation? Love of popularity over love of friends, that's not a good lineup. So Brooks would say, when we do that, that's sin. So love out of order. And I like this definition because I think it communicates what we mean by sin effectively to people in our world. I've heard sin defined as pride or selfishness before, but if you were to walk up to someone and say, hey, I think you're really selfish. What do you think they're gonna do? Get defensive. Right? But I think you can provide this example of well, do you ever get your loves in the wrong order? Have you ever let your love of popularity go above your love of a friend? And I think more people are quick to realize oh, yeah, I have done that. It's a little easier than saying you're really selfish. But we all do this, we all sin, we all get our loves mixed up and out of order. If you've ever loved money or popularity more than you've loved a person, then you have sinned. Or if you've ever loved yourself more than your neighbor, then you have sinned. And if you've ever loved anything more than you love God, then you sinned. And everyone gets love mixed up in the wrong ways. We hurt each other all the time, don't we? And I think that's just a testament to how we get love mixed up. So if perfect obedience to the law and the teachings of the Old Testament can be summarized, which it can, Jesus did it, so I'm on good ground. Jesus would summarize the law and teachings of the Old Testament as love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And we all get love out of order and none of us do this perfectly. And Paul says that because of that, we're all under death's rule. Because we can't get love in the right order, death comes to reign in our lives and it exerts its power over us. Sin or this disordered love always brings death. And because sin is a part of your life, death is a part of your life too. But Paul reminds us that Jesus comes to fix the situation. Jesus, the anointed one, through his death and resurrection, life comes to rule and defeat death. And so this is the message that is the core of our hope. Christ died for our sins, or you can read that as for our broken, misplaced and disordered loves. So Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That's 1 Corinthians 15, three through four. And chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, if you're ever trying to get your head around what life and death have to do with one another, 1 Corinthians 15 is a great place to turn. It is Paul's masterfully written account of what Jesus has done to death and what that means for us. Paul writes, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, that's kind of New Testament speak for those who have died. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead came also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 26. So if we kind of map this out sequentially, this is what it looks like. Adam sins, then death comes. And then in Adam, we all sin and death comes for us all. But then Jesus dies. Jesus rises from the dead. And in Jesus, we all will be made alive and then death will be defeated. Resurrection changes everything. And if there's no resurrection, then there's no point. That's Paul's, the kind of crux of Paul's argument in chapter 15. By rising from the dead, Jesus sets us free from the bondage of sin and death and shows us that we too will be resurrected. Now, I don't know if you all think about the fact that you live in a world that's subject to death. I'm only in my thirties, but I'm starting to get gray hair. Uh, My knees start to kind of sound like Rice Krispies when you pour milk on them. And I know, uh, particularly from the 830 crowd, but I hear sometimes about how fun aging is. So for those of you who've experienced that, you can tell me if it's fun or not. Um, But these bodies are dying, right? We live under the rule of death, all of us. But the resurrection's coming, So what will our resurrected bodies be like? I need to state two very obvious things. First, I have never died and I have never risen from the dead. And to my knowledge, no one else in this church right now has done either of those things. If you have, we really need to talk. So I can't speak from experience, but Paul says, listen, I tell you a mystery. There are mysterious things at work here. We don't know fully what this will be like. But Paul does remind us that our existence now is with our earthly body, but in the resurrection, it will be a heavenly body, a spiritual body. Paul, again, is kind of setting up a contrast between Adam, this first man who sinned, and Jesus who rose from the dead. So Adam, the first man, is made of an earthly body. Remember, Adam is made of dust, literally of earth. That's what Adam means, actually. And the second man, Jesus, is of heaven. Adam is of earthly material, just like us. Jesus is of heaven. The natural body comes first, then the spiritual body. This is what Paul is saying. Jesus even had a natural body before he had a spiritual body. But here's the key, the resurrection is bodily. When you die, you're not gonna live in heaven as some disembodied spirit or an angel. You're going to have a body. So unless the Lord returns first again, we will all die. And Paul kind of compares our death to that of a seed being buried in the ground. So if you've ever planted a garden or planted or grown anything from seed, I want you to imagine holding a seed in your hand, right? It's cold, it's hard, it's kind of seemingly lifeless, but you bury it in the ground. And when we die, we're like that seed. This is kind of the argument Paul sets up. Paul says that this body, this seed that will be buried in the ground one day Is perishable. It's dying. It's subject to death. But what comes from that seed, what will rise from the ground, is imperishable, not prone to death. So I think about the vast difference between a giant sequoia tree and its seed. A giant sequoia seed is small, smaller than a coin. But picture the tree that comes from it. It towers over all others. In some ways, that seed and that tree are. So different, but in other ways, they're similar. Obviously, they're related and similar, but that's kind of what it's gonna be like for us. There's gonna be continuity and discontinuity. What we're like now is kind of what we'll be like then, but there's gonna be difference. So let's read 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58 to kind of flesh that out. This is Paul writing. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the last trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed.'" But thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul is saying that in the life to come with God and the life after death, we're going to need a new kind of body. And not just those who have died, but let's suppose that some of us are alive when the Lord returns. We will need new bodies too. This dying body is subject to the poisonous effects of sin and death. This body has only ever known Sin, this body has only ever known a perishable life. It has to be a different kind of body entirely to live in the world to come. My dying perishable body, which again has only ever known the effects of sin, will be raised imperishable and immortal and the ravages of sin and death will have no power over it. An imperishable body for an imperishable heaven and earth. And we will gain victory over sin and death through Jesus because of what Jesus has done. So I want you to think about that, not just on the bodily side, but imagine a life free from sin. So if we all get our love out of order all the time and we hurt each other as a result, imagine a life where we love perfectly all the time. We won't hurt each other anymore. We'll always do what we're supposed to do It's not just about a new body, it's about a new life. And while I'm not exactly sure what this heavenly body is going to be like, I know that I'll be recognizable to a degree. Again, there's gonna be continuity and discontinuity. After all, Jesus's disciples were at least able to recognize him some of the time after he resurrected. And in some ways, I think it's gonna be like that. I feel like C.S. Lewis has come up quite a bit as we've worked our way through this series on eternity and I'm not gonna apologize for that. Um, But I think it's because his images are just so helpful at helping us kind of catch a glimpse at what eternity could be like. And I've been very slowly reading through the Chronicles of Narnia with my oldest daughter, Evelyn. Uh, Right now we're working our way through Prince Caspian. So she's about to get some spoilers, sorry, Evelyn. but it's been a joy to see these stories spark her imagination. And I'm gonna share a small selection of one of those amazing books with you today. And I hope that it captivates your imagination about what resurrected life might be like. So in the book, The Silver Chair, the two main characters are Eustace Scrub and his friend, Jill Pohl. Um, they are sent on a quest in Narnia to find the missing Prince Rilian. Uh, Rillian is the son of King Caspian, who is the titular, titular character of Prince Caspian, but he's now a very old man and he's about to die. So Aslan sends Jill and Eustace to find Rillian and reunite him with his father before his father dies. After a lot of misadventures, Eustace and Jill do succeed and bring Rillian home and reunite him with his dad. But shortly after King Caspian dies. So I'm gonna read some snippets of the story and offer a little bit of context. So when Caspian dies, Aslan the lion who represents Jesus in these stories, he magically brings Eustace, Jill and the deceased king's body to Aslan's country, which is kind of this metaphor for heaven. So this is a selection from the story. So then Aslan stopped and the children looked into the stream and there on the golden gravel bed of the stream lay King Caspian dead, with the water flowing over him like liquid glass His long white beard swayed in it like waterweed and all three stood and wept. Even the lion wept, great lion tears, each tear more precious than the earth would be if it was a single solid diamond. I think even God mourns death. It's not part of his design. He doesn't like it, it makes him sad. So then what happens is Aslan asks Eustace, the boy, to get a thorn and drive it into his paw. And then a drop of Aslan's blood falls into the stream where King Caspian lays. And at that same moment, this is back into the book, the doleful music stopped and the dead king began to be changed. His white beard turned to gray and from gray to yellow and then got shorter and vanished altogether. And his sunken cheeks grew round and fresh and the wrinkles were smoothed and his eyes opened and his eyes and lips both laughed, and suddenly he leaped and stood before them, a very young man. Now this story is not scripture, but it is an attempt from Lewis to kind of give us a picture of what a resurrected body might be like. And it's a really hopeful picture. And as you contemplate your own death, or you grapple with the death of a loved one in Christ, know that death is not the end. That body died. But in their resurrection, they will be free from the effects of sin and death. That body will be raised in the kingdom to come, recognizable, but different. And those of us in Christ will take off our perishable clothes, so to speak, to borrow Paul's metaphor. And we will put on imperishable ones and live forever with God in a world made right and a world made free from sin and death. And I know from experience that losing someone you love is painful and it is good to grieve a loss. And if you need support, if you are grieving, we have grief share starting in a couple of weeks and you can get information about that in the Welcome Home Center. We want to walk alongside you as you journey through grief. But as people who believe in Christ and believe in the resurrection, we don't grieve without hope. We know that those people will be raised, put to rights, free from pain, from illness and the effects of sin. We have a tremendous hope. So you may be sitting here thinking, this is really nice. And it is, it's very nice. It is truly the best news. But you may be wondering, what do I do with this? Is this just about what happens when I die? Now, I don't think so. I don't think Paul would ever really let us off that easy. That doesn't seem to be how he operates. So if we turn to the end of chapter 15, verses 57 through 58, Paul tells us how we should live now because of our assurance in the resurrected life to come. Paul says, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I really like that. That's really nice. I like victory. This is good news. But Paul doesn't stop there. He continues. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Therefore, that's a, because you know this is true, this is how you live now. Paul says, let nothing move you because you don't fear death and you don't have to fear death. You don't have to be afraid of anything. You don't have to let the fears and worries of your time move you. You know what's going to happen. You know how this all ends and that hope you have in this great and glorious ending should enable you to live fully in the present. And because you can live unswayed, you can fully commit yourselves to the work of the Lord because you know that ultimately that is the work that matters. And this is what the work of the Lord is. It's to share this message of hope that Jesus has made a way for us to live in freedom from the tyranny of sin and the power of death. And it is open to anyone who wants to give their lives to Jesus as King. So if you believe this news, share this news. It is far too good to keep it to yourself. So many people around us live in the valley of the shadow of death and they have no clue how to get out. They are just crossing their fingers, hoping for the best. But you, you know that there is a way out. And you personally know the way, the truth, and the life who can set them free from the powers of sin and death. Don't keep it to yourself And I'm not saying this to shame you, but I hope that your belief in the resurrection and in the world to come fills you with so much hope and so much joy that you can't help but share it. This fall, uh, we're gonna be launching some small groups, which we are going to call table groups. And the point of them is to really help you do just this. These groups are gonna be about equipping you and coming alongside you and discipling you within a community that's there to help you and be with you as you share the good news. We're gonna help you learn how to do this, how to talk about this, wherever you live, work, or play. And our hope is that you're gonna find yourself in a meaningful network of relationships where you are growing together as disciples who are learning to be fishers of people, going out into Arlington and casting these nets to be fishers of people and draw those nets in as we spread the good news over the city. These groups will meet in evenings and homes around our community. And we're gonna provide more information on those soon as well as how to sign up and let us know that you're interested. But know that we want to help you as much as possible when it comes to sharing the good news. And we know how hard it is to do it by yourself. You are not meant to live this Christian life alone. And we want to help you thrive in a community doing the Lord's work together. But here we are now, people living in this in-between time in an already not yet, we've kind of talked about this tension all series long. Unless Jesus returns first, we are all going to die. And it is still okay to mourn the people that we love, but we know that Jesus has already started this victory, that Jesus has dealt death a killing blow. Death is going to die one day and its power won't hold us down because it couldn't hold Jesus down. We will be transformed and we will be raised from death to live a new life fully in Christ. But death has not been defeated completely yet. It has lost its sting and now we get to live in hope. If you're in this room and you have yet to declare Jesus as King of your life, in a little bit, we're gonna have an opportunity for you to come to the front and have a conversation with someone if that's a decision that you would like to make. Uh, you can come to the front after the prayer. I'm about to pray during the music. You're also welcome to join us in the Welcome Home Center, which is located right off of this room and have a conversation there with us. This kind of resurrected life is open to all of us because Jesus has made a way for all of us. Our overarching verses series has been John three sixteen, which says, for God so loved the whole world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. Jesus has made this kind of life possible for everybody, everyone, everywhere, with no exceptions. And no matter what you've done, or if you think you're not good enough, Jesus died for you and he rose for you to make this kind of life possible for you. And if you're interested in that, we would love to talk with you more. Again, we'll be down here at the front and in the Welcome Home Center if you'd like to have that conversation. You can also come to the front if you have yet to be publicly baptized and you would like to make that public profession of faith or if you'd like to join our church. But for those of you who are already Christians, remember, we have hope. Let's share it. Pray with me. God, we thank you that you have made a way for us to be with you forever, that you have set us free from sin, that you have set us free from death and that you are working to make all things right again. And as we go about our lives, I pray that you will remind us that you are there, that you are equipping us, that you are calling us forward into the lives of others to share this good news with them. Be with us as we finish worshiping together as a community this morning, but remind us, That as we go from this place, the work doesn't end here. In your name we pray, amen.